Not only is that a clear-cut commandment not to give ourselves to the things of the world, but it also lays out how the spirit of the world appeals to our lower nature. It entices our flesh in the hopes of making us lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It dangles the temporal possessions of the world before our eyes, encouraging us to lust after them, to demand that we have them. And it fosters within us the ambition for prominence. One of the greatest dangers to Christians in modern America is worldliness. And yet, if a sincere pastor declares that God requires his people to live holy and separated lives, his words are often dismissed as legalistic, or even worse, as an attack on the grace of God. But the Word of God tells us that if we are a friend of the world, we make ourselves enemies of God. So the biblical call to holiness must not be dismissed, but properly understood and then lived out. What is worldliness? How do we avoid it and walk in the grace of God? That's what's coming up on Purity for Life. spirit of the world, it wants to seduce you, to lead you away from God and into a life filled with carnality, sensuality, and sin. This is a truth that we must be aware of. Now, in order to accomplish his goal, the spirit of the world always seeks to convince us that most of the things in the world, you know, except for the really horrible stuff like pornography, that they're neutral and that we can go through life just passively absorbing all of the entertainment that comes our way and we're not affected by it. But we must resist this notion. We must realize that many of the things in the world have a message, a message that would try to draw us away from God. In our opening segment, Pastor Steve Gallagher once again shares from his own testimony and talks about how the decision to separate himself from the influence of the world allowed God to open his eyes to the spiritual realities all around him. Here's Pastor Steve now from 20 Truths That Helped Me in My Battle with Porn Addiction. Okay, truth number 17. The spirit of the world wants to seduce you. In an earlier talk, I said something to the effect that Satan sees the significance of a person's heart which is why he puts such a premium on influencing, clouding, seducing, and winning it. I want to explore this idea more fully in this segment, but first I must once again return to my own story. It was May of 1985 and my wife and I were about to make a decision that would prove to have a deep impact on the direction our lives would take in the future. It all started when I was reading a book by David Wilkerson where he was talking about the bad effects television has on the lives of believers. The Lord used what I read in that little book to convict me about watching television. The whole idea seemed crazy to me at the time. Every Christian I knew watched television. I mean, it's not like I was watching raunchy or violent programming. It was mostly pretty tame stuff. But I couldn't shake the sense that the Lord wanted us to get rid of our television set. 
So that's what we did. Like any addiction, at first it was difficult. We didn't know what to do with our evenings, but we found different ways to occupy ourselves and before long we got used to life without television. Eventually, months after the addiction to it was broken, the Lord allowed us to get another TV set. But with this major difference, we had to limit our viewing to watching videos. Rather than being hooked up to network television, we'd occasionally watch a documentary or a Christian movie or something. The advantage to being confined to videos was that we weren't tempted to channel surf and we didn't have to deal with carnal commercials. It was one year later that the Lord led me to begin Pure Life Ministries. At the time, I couldn't see any correlation between watching network television and beginning this ministry to sex addicts, but over time it all began to make sense. There were occasions when I would come across a TV set plan, like at a friend's house or in a restaurant. It was amazing to me how differently I saw that programming now. Let me illustrate it like this. Consider a guy who quit smoking. When he was a regular smoker, he could go into a smoke-filled room without a second thought. But after he quit, he couldn't stand being in places like that. Why the change? Because once his lungs were cleaned out, he could now feel the poisonous effects cigarette smoke has on the lungs something he didn't even notice when his lungs were used to it. That's a picture of how my eyes were open to the polluting effects carnal television had been having on my soul. So what at first seemed like an unwelcome restriction on my life became a true blessing to me. Now that the worldly fog had lifted off my mind, the Lord was also able to begin communicating to me in a much clearer way. He started revealing marvelous truths about himself in scripture. One of the most powerful things I experienced at that time actually occurred as I started studying the book of Revelation. No Bible study I have ever undertaken could compare to what I came into when I started studying that apocalyptic book. By the time I finished, I had spent over 1,200 hours in it. I listened to sermons on tape, read books and studied commentaries. I prayed over the verses one by one. I studied the book of Revelation inductively and listened to a dramatization of the book on cassette so many times I wore out the tape. I even visited the ruins of the seven churches in Turkey, which Jesus addressed in chapters two and three. I was so taken up with this tremendous book that there were times that the realities of the spiritual realm where the mighty conflict exists between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness actually became more real to me than the physical world around me. The message I uncovered in that Bible study affected me very deeply, altering the entire course of my life and ministry. This study opened my eyes to how the spirit of the world was affecting Christians, how it affected my life. There are actually three words in the New Testament that describe our planet. First, there's the word gay, which is simply the Greek term for the physical earth. Second, there's the word eon, which is sometimes translated as age and sometimes translated as world. It describes the temporal existence humans experience on earth during their lifetimes. God resides outside the limitations of time, but all other spiritual and physical beings are confined to the realm of time and the spirit of the world is always, always doing its utmost to keep people's attention fixed on their present existence and off the hereafter. 
The third Greek term that describes the world is cosmos. This is a fascinating word to study because it describes the spirit that unredeemed mankind lives in. Maybe you could say it is the group think of the mass of humanity who live without God. The Apostle Peter calls on believers to escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. And it is that carnal passion that the enemy uses to influence and control our lives. The Apostle John really laid it out in his first epistle. He said, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Not only is that a clear-cut commandment not to give ourselves to the things of the world, but it also lays out how the spirit of the world appeals to our lower nature. It entices our flesh in the hopes of making us lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It dangles the temporal possessions of the world before our eyes, encouraging us to lust after them, to demand that we have them. And it fosters within us the ambition for prominence, attempting to gain our worth from some worldly position rather than in our relationship with Christ. It's all part of being one with the spirit of this world. And it is in that lust-filled environment that the craving for illicit sex can thrive. I mean, when a person's life is filled with the things of this world, it really isn't a big step into pornography. And a person who's living with the lust for pleasure and possessions is not going to have the spiritual wherewithal to overcome the lust for sex. So how is a committed Christian supposed to live a consecrated life in a culture driven by television, internet, and social media? There needs to be some level of separation, doesn't there? I mean, if the only difference in our lives from the rest of those masses of unbelieving people is that we go to church on Sunday, can we honestly consider ourselves to be God's people? All I can tell you is that having spent much time in prayer over this issue has translated into controlling my television viewing, spending very little time browsing the internet, and no time on social media. I do not want to be a part of Satan's kingdom. How do we know where we should draw those lines? Well, we must sincerely ask the Lord to show us. If you belong to Him, you'll be able to sense His displeasure if you cross those lines. And if you belong to him, you will not want any part of Satan's kingdom. While the Bible doesn't specifically address things like television, the internet, movies, and social media, it does provide several vivid pictures of what a worldly lifestyle will do to the Christian. One such example is the story of Abraham and Lot. Lot had a great example of a godly man that he could look up to but he chose to separate himself and go his own way, right into the spiritual culture of Sodom, a choice that would cost him and his family dearly. In this segment, Mike Johnston and Steve Gallagher discuss a section in Pastor Steve's book, Intoxicated with Babylon, and examine Lot's decline into a worldly and carnal lifestyle. 
Steve Gallagher has joined us in the studio. Steve, thanks uh, for stopping by again. Wonderful to be here. Steve, as we begin our discussion on the issue of worldliness, we want to turn to your book, Intoxicated with Babylon. As you laid out there, a really excellent example of worldliness with a discussion of the relationship between Abraham and Lot. For our listeners who may not be familiar with that history, uh, why don't you begin with Abraham himself? Well, Mike, a few weeks ago, we touched on the place that the Tower of Babel played in the history of Satan's attack against God's people and uh, how Nimrod established a society outside of God's authority, and he did all of that in the area we now call Mesopotamia. It was in that very fertile area of Mesopotamia that Abraham was born, really not long after Nimrod died. So Abraham was born into this very wicked culture in Mesopotamia that had been so uh, led into rebellion by Nimrod. And Scripture is pretty quiet about his early days, his early years. Actually, we don't pick up the story of Abraham till he was, well, I think, 70 years old when he received the call from God to come out of Mesopotamia. You know, in, in fact, the words that are used by uh, Scripture really describe what it's like for a godly person to be consecrated. It says in Hebrews 11:8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an, an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Well, that's describing a process of separation from the ungodly culture that surrounds us all. You know, I mean, that's really what Abraham did to show his faith in God in the first place. And Abraham did not go alone. Talk to us about Lot and what happened in their relationship as Abraham was called out. Well, Lot also had some kind of an experience with God. And so he decided to attach himself and his family to Abraham as they left Mesopotamia and headed into this unchartered region. And Lot followed along, and, you know, over the years or however long of a period of time, he was blessed, and his herds grew and multiplied and so on, and as did Abraham's. And there came a point where there was a crisis because Lot's servants began arguing with Abraham's servants. And so Lot was faced with the decision, either I am going to submit myself to Abraham and demand that all my servants do the same, or I'm going to have to separate myself and go my own way. And that's what he chose to do. Uh, So talk to us about the ultimate decision that Lot did make and what that may have revealed about his heart. Lot had a choice. He could either go west or east. And he looked out over the Jordan Valley and saw that it was well watered. Back in those days, it was very lush. And even though it contained the wicked societies of Sodom and Gomorrah, he could not pass up the prosperity that was there. And so that's the direction he took his family. Now Lot finds himself, his family, in this city. The city is then attacked. And uh, once again, his uncle Abraham comes to his defense. Yes. You know, it's interesting how he, first of all, he moved into the Jordan Valley. And then next we hear he's living in the area of Sodom. And then finally, he ends up living in the city. And uh, it was actually when he was living in the environs of the city, right outside the city, that it was attacked by some rival kings, and they were all hauled off. And yes, Abraham 
tracked them down and saved his foolish nephew and restored him. And once again, Lot was, you know, he had the opportunity. This really was a spiritual wake-up call for Lot and his wife, you know, showing them where his foolish decisions were going to take him. But once again, he saw the choice between the city life and boring life of his uncle, and he chose the city life and moved, at that point, moved right into the city. Man, I can think how many times in our sin that we actually thought to ourselves, well, gosh, if I do everything God's asking me to do, how boring would my life be? Well, that's the way it seems when you're looking at it through carnal eyes, you know, and and when you haven't yet seen the glories and the joy of serving the Lord and that intimacy, people settle for a a worldly life and a casual relationship with God, and then they tell themselves they're really godly, and it's just not true. Yeah, and of course we have a culture that keeps pounding us with this idea that, boy, if you don't have this, if you're not doing these things, if you're not enjoying this thing, then life would be boring. So that really is the lie that's infiltrated almost every aspect of especially the American culture. Well, that's what this book is all about, is showing how the spirit of the world has gotten into the church, into the body of Christ, and is deceiving people and leading them astray and drawing them into the pagan culture around us and weakening their faith, if not completely destroying it. But of course, there is always a consequence to turning away from God and turning to the things of this world, and Lot and his family certainly faced those in Sodom. Well, you know, this kind of wickedness draws upon itself judgment. It's only a matter of time. And that's what happened. God decided that it was time to step in. There was too much wickedness going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. So he sent these two angels, and Abraham saw what was going on, so he began interceding for his nephew. And it was only his intercessions that saved Lot. That's all that saved him, because Abraham stepped in between uh, judging God and all of these wicked people. He stepped in there and started pleading with God to have mercy on anyone who would show the slightest willingness to obey God. And out of all of those two cities, all that he could find were four people. And of those four, one of them ended up being destroyed anyway. And, you know, Lot, even still in this situation, he was still reluctant to leave. Well, that's what the word says. I mean, it says that he hesitated, and that word in the Greek literally does mean that he was very reluctant to move. He did not want to leave Sodom, even with these two angels warning him that they were about to destroy the city. He was so attached to it and so in love with what the city gave him that he didn't want to go. And I don't think his family wanted to go either, but it says that the angels grabbed him by the hand and drug him out of there. And again, it only happened because of the prayers of his uncle. And of course, for those who have spent any time in the Word of God who are familiar with this story, we all must remember Lot's wife. And Lot's wife, just in the final end, would not let go of the city life of Sodom in her heart and was destroyed along with all the other wicked people. Well, Steve, in the time we have left, let's look at uh, some of the lessons that uh, we can learn from Sodom. Well, there's basically three examples that we can derive from this story. First, there's Abraham, who illustrates what a life of faith and consecration should be. He was determined to follow God, to obey God, and to live a life pleasing to God, no matter what it cost him personally. And then there's Lot, and he represents worldly, lukewarm Christians who ostensibly are followers of Christ, but really in their hearts, 
They love the things of this world, and that's what they're devoted to in their hearts. Lot could not give up the world. That's the bottom line. The benefits were too good to pass up, and he just could not get himself to let go of those things, and he paid a terrible price. He ended up living in a cave with his two daughters, getting them both pregnant, and you don't hear anything else about Lot for the rest of his life. He was a defeated Christian. Whatever that meant in the eternal, I don't know, but he was definitely a picture of a defeated Christian. And then there's his wife, who represents the unconverted amongst us, those who learn how to mimic the things of Christianity but have never given their heart to God at all. And when it comes right down to it, they are always going to make the choice to follow the things of this world. Now, I'm going to ask the hard question. You just mentioned that you don't know what Lot's life represented in the eternal. But, you know, there are many, Steve, as you well know, it's it's obvious by the fact that you've written this book, that there are many that call themselves Christians who are not willing to let go of the things of this world. Ought they really to be calling themselves Christians? Well, not if the real love of their heart is this world. And, you know, the proof really is in the pudding that I guess we can see what we really love by what we're giving our lives over to, you know, any given day. What's most of our focus on? What's most of our interest in? What are we doing with our time and money? Those are the kinds of things that really show where our heart is. Jesus said, where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. The title of the book is Intoxicated with Babylon, The Seduction of God's People in the Last Days. And that, of course, is available in our web store at Pure Life Ministries. Steve Gallagher, thanks so much. It's a subject I love to talk about. Amen. There is no escaping it. We live in the world. In fact, Jesus told us that we are the salt of the world and the light of the world. We aren't to withdraw from the world around us, but to allow our lives to influence those in the world. But the enemy of our souls has the same goal for Christians to transfix us with the pleasures and the entertainments of this present world so that our lights go out and our lives lose their saltiness. In this segment from our archives, Kathy Gallagher, Mike Johnston, and Brad Fergus discuss some of the dangers in allowing ourselves to be drawn into a worldly lifestyle. Brad Purgis has joined us in the studio. Brad, thanks for coming in to talk with us. Thanks for having me, Mike. Brad, we want to talk today about the call from the Lord to separate from the world. I know that a lot of people, when they look at maybe the men or the women that come into our programs that are dealing with sexual sin, they're just beside themselves, shocked even. Well, how do people get involved with stuff like this? And, you know, really, (laughs) to me, the real question is, why don't more people get involved with it when you consider the kind of society we live in? Mm. Mike, what comes to my mind is that in our society today, there are billboards, quote unquote, Mm. everywhere Mm. for young people, whether it's the internet, Walmart, classroom, there are billboards everywhere, not only showing pictures of illicit sex, but verbiage and imagery, which Mm -hmm. for the most part will communicate to a young person or to people, period, in our society that sex outside of marriage is okay, have as much sex as you want to, sexual sin won't really catch up with you. It won't destroy your life or your marriage. You take, for instance, a 14-year-old. 14-year-old guy, I'm sure, when he gets his hand on some pornography, just like the best thing going. As he first gets introduced to it, 
is great. He's pulled into that. But that little guy has no idea what's going to happen to him down the road. Well, even before the pornography, you know, he's really been primed right. for it. He's going to school. He's hearing his peers talk about sex. He's seeing it on television. How many hours of television do our teenagers watch? Mm-hmm. He's watching MTV. He's hearing it on the radio, yeah. magazines. MySpace. You know, everything. Yeah. Everything he's YouTube. looking at is priming YouTube. him yeah, for yeah, the enemy's trap just to be sprung. That one time where he's on the internet when no one else is around and he just happens even out of curiosity where he may go himself or maybe he clicks on one of these innocuous looking links on the internet that has nothing to do with pornography but very often these days is linked to a pornographic site Mm -hmm. and there the enemy triggers that trap. And he's been primed already to fall into that pit. Even if a young boy didn't have all of that in his life, isn't it? I mean, I'm not a boy, so you guys tell me, but but don't we noticed, 14... We noticed you weren't a boy. Thank you. <laughs> a 14-year-old boy is ready to go, mm. right? And so it doesn't That's take true. much. All he needs is an image. So if he has all that prep and pornography thrown in front of him, there is no stop sign in this boy. He's going to go for it. I mean, I can't imagine any 14-year-old child that's been primed this way with his hormones raging, having the wherewithal to say no. You're saying primed makes me think that this 14-year-old boy has been in trouble since he was maybe 9 or 10. Mm. Well, the average age of exposure to pornography now is 8 years old. But, you know, this is not something new. I mean, even Paul... When he was talking to the Corinthian church, the Corinthians lived in a very sexualized culture. Mm -hmm. It was a little different than ours today, more related to some of the pagan worship at the time, Mm -hmm. but still a very sexualized culture. And Paul warned them to keep from falling into sexual sin. Yeah, he sure did. 2 Corinthians 6, he actually says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So God really has called Christians to be separate from the world. But in today's American church, we don't take that very seriously, do we? I believe overall there is a delusion that if you go to church, if you are involved in your local church, that makes you separate or different. But Mm. in the final analysis, when you break down the daily life of the typical American Christian, you would see them doing the same things that people who are unsaved. You know, in this verse, there's a conditional promise in here. Mm. God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. If, you know, there's an if in there and that makes it a conditional promise. So if you're honest with yourself and you start asking yourself hard questions, you eventually come to the place where you realize this is the standard. This is what the Lord has laid out. This is what he said we are to do. This is how we separate ourselves from the world. And that's the standard, not do we go to church twice in the week? Do we pay our tithes? Because those things are outward things. But what's really going on in in your heart Mm. and who are you? That's what this speaks to me. When I read this, it's like, who are you really as a Christian? And what are you doing with your life? And are you really separated? It's got to begin with your heart. You can do all the outward stuff, but if you're not separated in your heart, it's going to be very hard to maintain a separated outward life as well. And what is the purpose of our lives? I know many Christians, they'll read those verses and they see them as a list of do's and don'ts. You know, keep the rules, keep the law. 
here we are living by the law again. Mm -hmm. But the real motivation here is if I want that relationship with the Lord, then these are the things that I don't want in my life because they get in the way of that relationship. Right. Right. And God's goal for our lives is that we would glorify him in every area of of our lives, with our bodies, with our lives, with our time, with whatever we're doing. As saints, we're, we are to live as strangers and pilgrims in the earth, as it says in yes. Hebrews 11. And we are to keep seeking the things that are above, for our citizenship is in heaven. We are supposed to be eagerly waiting for the Savior. But if we are allowing the world to dictate to us how we live, mm. we're not eagerly waiting for the Savior. I like what A.W. Tozer said. He said, men think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. Mm. We are not here to fight. We are here to frolic. We are not in a foreign land. We are at home. We're not getting ready to live. We are already living. Mm. And the best we can do is rid ourselves of our inhibitions and our frustrations and live this life to the full. Mm. It really is a lack of an eternal perspective, isn't it? Right. We're just focused on the here and now. And that is, you know, I mean, let's just be fair about it. That is the American way of life. Yeah, it's true. Right. And just an understanding of of life and, and circumstances, for the most part, the mindset is worldly. Everything that happens, it focuses more on the world and not on, well, what is God doing? What is behind what's going on in our world? And Christians are living without an eternal perspective, you know, and I know God has been working that into me over the years because I didn't see. God has a plan. God's doing something. His kingdom is coming to this earth, and Christians need to live like that. But for the most part, as a collective whole, we don't. We're, we're asleep. We're not sober and awake and looking forward to Jesus returning and doing what he's wanting to do in the last days. Well, you know, that's what a love of the world does, though. It chokes out the love for God. Yes. I just think about the deplorable lack of hunger for God's word in many people and why they end up in habitual sexual sin or habitual gambling or habitual overeating is because God and his word are not real to them because the love of all kinds of things have choked out the love of the word of God. But if people would get into it, you know, if you just like would give God an opportunity, take, you know, do some radical stuff to yourself, separate yourself for a period of time and, Mm -hmm. and get real with God and let him deal with you for a month. Just cut off the world right. and get with God and get before his word. I really believe something would happen for people. Yeah. Kathy, you mentioned the things that choke out God's word. And I want to read this quote from David Wilkerson. He wrote this back in 1970. And we're about to step on somebody's toes here, I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the people that I know, we're about to step on your toes. The effects of television. This yeah. was written in 1970. Satan is succeeding through television in a way not possible by any other kind of demonic invasion. Through that speaking idol, he can accomplish in this generation what he accomplished in Eden. But the sodomites are in now in our homes, and we are now the blinded ones. Homosexual writers, actors, and producers flaunt their evil right before our eyes. And admit it or not, you and all your home are under a demotic sodomite attack. Yeah. That was back in 1970 when television was still relatively tame. Television is having a horrific impact on the spiritual lives of Christians in America. Yeah, and we harp on this day and night when Steve and I are out speaking. I just did a a conference in Indianapolis a couple months ago, and I probably spent half an hour railing on TV and the effects of television and what it's doing to God's people. And, you know, I don't want to come across legalistic. I certainly don't want to come across self-righteous. But I want to say unequivocally that television for the Christian 
is wrong. Cable television, network television, that medium coming in from the world for a Christian to sit down in front of that for a couple of hours a night, an hour a night, whatever it is, to sit there and listen to the world's message and question why they don't have a dynamic connection with God. It's just, I I struggle with it. I have a hard time understanding where believers are at with where they're at. It's like David Wilkerson said, and I'll paraphrase it, you're letting the devil speak to you in your own home. And in a passive way. Yes. Right. Just, just sitting there soaking in the world's message. And the thing with a lot of television is it doesn't look that bad. Yeah, that's right. But throughout a, a program, there are images that are going to be shot at different times. There's a message. Those people that are presenting these programs are typically godless people who mm-hmm. want to push their agenda. And who do you think are inspiring them other than Lucifer himself? That's right. But you, you know why it doesn't look bad, Brad, is because of the desensitization of the viewer. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Now, I've gone into ministry and fallen back into sin, and and now the Lord has done a work in my heart. But I remember years ago, when I first walked away from the gay community, I stopped watching television for three years. And when I came back, I was shocked Mm -hmm. by what was on television. Mm -hmm. What had happened is that I had become sensitized once again. My Mm -hmm. conscience had become sensitized by the Holy Spirit. I would venture to say that the Christians out there now that don't think television is bad, it's simply because... They're numb. They've become corrupted by what they're watching. Yeah, that's that's very true. The world corrupts, and they have been corrupted. Desensitized, and, and so that leads to uh, they're deadened spiritually, and they don't have mm-hmm. a hunger a hunger for the Lord at all, and so they're kind of walking around as zombies, mm-hmm. you know, waiting for someone to give them a word or something to resuscitate them. Right. And I would like to say, too, that you look at television. The television is playing out all the deeds of the flesh day in and day out, day in and day out. And those are the things that will separate you from our relationship with God, the deeds of the flesh. And I've had friends and even relatives share with me about television, and they insist that they can handle it. Like, well, I just know this is just a show or this is just a program. But I want to say if anyone's out there that thinks that way, yeah, it is just a show, just a program. But the spirit of the world is getting infiltrated into your heart and your mind and your being, and it is desensitizing you more and more. And it is God's enemy. Yeah, and I was going to say, one of the evidences of how powerful it is is the billions of dollars that advertisers spend Mm -hmm. to have their products on those programs. They know how powerful that medium is, or they wouldn't be spending the money. Right. They know they're influencing you. (laughs) Right. Right. That's right. And getting you to do things you wouldn't otherwise do. Yes. And once again, priming Christians for what for many is the trap that the enemy triggers, and that is the Internet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's a biggie. <laughs> thinking about the Internet today, Mike, and um, I had a little word picture. I know you like word pictures, so I'm going to bring one. <laughs> well, I'm kind of simple. I need them to understand things. So <laughs> I just I remember as a kid, I grew up in Virginia on the farm, and I remember doing all sorts of experiments with with animals and insects. And I used to torture them sometimes. Nice. Um, <laughs> but you're, I remember... You're one sick individual. <laughs> yeah. You're in the well, right thank place. thank you. <laughs> well, God's, God's going to work in the intern program. I told yeah. you I was in the intern program. <laughs> but um, I remember watching um, a spider's web, and I would... You know, sometimes I would put grasshoppers on the web, but a lot of times, you know, something would fly by, and then that spider would jump out, guess, bite the thing, and then wrap it up real quick. Okay, I admit it. I enjoyed watching that, too. (laughs) (laughs) But I really—it just made me think of the Internet, how now it's gotten so you have to use the Internet. Mm -hmm. Right. And so for many—I know for maybe millions of people, 
because they had to use the internet for something or was part of school or everybody else has it. They got on the internet and they got caught in the web and mm. then the enemy has come out, got them entangled in it and now they, they can't get out of it. Yeah. It's just the, the mm. picture that I had. Pastors, Christians who maybe they struggled with some temptation but never thought of going and getting pornography. Mm. Now they're able to access it at click of the finger right you know, in their office or somewhere and how the enemy has taken the internet and he is just tearing up the body of Christ. Oh yeah. And he yeah, is he's successful at doing it. Yeah. yeah. Well, we started our discussion today, Brad, talking about God's call for God's people to separate themselves from the world. How important is it that Christians in the body of Christ, especially those who may be struggling with the sensuality of the culture or with a particular temptation, how important is it that they really get serious and drastic about practical ways to separate themselves? Well, I think that in this dark hour that that we're living in, it's time for them to wake up. It's time for them to grow up. (laughs) And it's time for them to take a stand and say, you know what? I am not going to let the enemy in this world take me any farther away from God. I'm not going to let the enemy destroy my home and destroy my church. These are some things Jesus has made it clear in his word how we should live our, our life. We have the word of God to instruct us how to make the separation, how to make the cut, how to do drastic things that are necessary so that we can live a holy and a godly life. But it takes courage. It does. To the degree that you have given over in some way to the world or to some sin, to that degree, it's going to be a battle to fight out of it. But Mm -hmm. it's worth it. It really is in in the end. And the enemy wants you to believe that there's no way you can give up your internet access. Mm-hmm. and yeah. There's no way you can put a filter on your computer and slow it down so much. Yes, you can. <laughs> you can do it. And probably if we look at our lives, many of us who are on the internet, we could cut out a lot of the things that we surf that could trip us up in some way. But I was thinking this morning as well, the internet has been set up in such a way, it's almost creating a, a scenario like cell phones, like you can't live without it. Mm-hmm. You can sense it. It's like there are times when, when we lose internet access, everyone's in a panic. Yeah. Oh, my internet's not up. Like the yeah. world is right, going right. to stop. The whole office yeah. shot, shuts down. Yeah. Go home. <laughs> Go home. Internet's down. <laughs> well, you know, Brad, it sounds like we really have to, and I think Tozer said it well, we have to come to the realization that this world for the Christian is not a playground. We're not here to see how much of the flesh we can indulge. Uh, It really is a battleground. And we are going to have to, if I can use the analogy of a fish, we're going to have to swim upstream. Upstream, And we're going to have to do things that to maybe the average Joe seems a little little radical. If you're not separated from the world, not only are you going to suffer, but multitudes around you Mm. are going to suffer because people in this dark hour, young people, old people, they need to see a true witness. And if you have not divorced yourself from this world, you're not going to be able to effectively represent Jesus. Okay, you've come to the Lord years ago and you were on fire for him. You've gotten off track. It's time to wake up because there are multitudes the Lord wants to reach through your life. And it's, it's vital in this hour that we just unplug from the world. I think it would be a good idea for us to just <laughs> go through our lives and just do a check and say, okay, mm-hmm. this needs to go. Okay, this this is useless. This is taking me away from the Lord. I'm spending too much time doing this when I could be praying for people and pressing into God and growing closer to Him. There is hope. There is and, hope. And does, God does give us hope that if, we, as Kathy, you said earlier, if we'll separate ourselves If we'll consecrate ourselves to the Lord, he does want to have that relationship with us. And I'm so glad that you said what you said, not only for our sake, 
Mm-hmm. But for the sake of others around us, maybe our children, maybe mm-hmm. our loved ones. You never that, know who's watching. Yeah, right. That, as you said, need to see a true witness, someone truly filled with the love of Christ as opposed to being filled with the things of the world. Right. It's true. Amen. Brad Fergus, thanks so much. Thank you, Mike. Worldliness is addressed over and over in the Bible using very strong language. The Apostle John wrote, Do not love the world or the things in the world, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Yet, despite these clear warnings, worldliness is rarely addressed or given any real concern. We must stop and take an honest look at ourselves. Where are our hearts? Where is our treasure? What direction are we heading in? Are we moving towards God or away from him in our hearts and daily lives? Please, take some time to examine your life in the light of these truths. There is nothing more important than your eternal destination. We already mentioned it, but if your heart has been stirred today and if you would like some further material to read about the subject of worldliness, we would encourage you to pick up a copy of Pastor Steve's book, Intoxicated with Babylon, The Seduction of God's People in the Last Days. And that's available on our online bookstore at store.purelifeministries.org. For Pure Life Ministries, this is Nate Dancer. We'll see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.